0: welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. Usually around this time of year, Bethany and I have a mostly silly discussion of strange and fun and wacky science-themed gift ideas, alongside my discussion with Joanne Manister and John Dupuy, looking back at the science books we've all read this year. We're still going to talk about the science books we've read. That's coming up in a few minutes. But this year, it didn't feel quite right to us to have that other sillier discussion. If you are looking for those kinds of ideas, you can check out the news section on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca, where we have all our previous year's lists. I'm sure many of those items are still available. In light of the realities of 2020, we thought it would be more useful to highlight some charities in need that accept donations. If it's within your means to do so, consider making a donation to a cause you care about – Or perhaps give someone else the gift of a donation to a cause they care about, in their name. If you're in the United States, consider donating to the National Low Income Housing Coalition. They're dedicated to helping everyone have an affordable and comfortable home, no matter what their income. In a year when so many people have lost jobs and can't pay rent, they're doing everything they can to help make sure everyone has housing. As a science podcast, we also want to mention the American Indian Science and Engineering Society. This group is devoted to increasing the number of Indigenous people represented in STEM fields. They support students at all levels of education, as well as young professionals in STEM. We also want to shout out the Equal Justice Initiative. This group is working to end mass incarceration and toward racial justice, and one of their missions is educating people about the history of racial injustice in the United States. These are just a couple of worthy causes in the U.S. we wanted to call attention to. But there are many, many more. If you're looking for other U.S. charities to give to, maybe some that are more local to your area, you can check out charitynavigator.org, which evaluates and scores nonprofits, taking into account how accountable and transparent they are. It's a great tool to get you started. If you're in Canada, consider donating to Food Banks Canada or your local food bank branch. Many people who perhaps never considered they might need help putting food on their family's table are now needing to lean on these services. Check with the food bank before you donate to see what's most needed and try to give what they need most right now, as it may not be what you think it is. Consider supporting the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness or a homeless shelter or charity local to you. In particular, homeless shelters this year are being put in the terrible position of having more people need their services, but having less space due to social distance needs. Contact your local shelter and your local charities to find out what they need. It may be PPE, it may be food, it may be warm clothing, it may just be money so they can respond in the moment to the swiftly changing needs. Also look at Inspire, a national charity in Canada that invests in the education of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people in remote, rural, and urban communities across the country. If you're Canadian looking for a local charity to support, two places to start your research. Take a look at CanadaHelps.org, which has great search tools to help you find provincial or hyper-local charities of the type you most want to support. There's also a great list in a post on McLean's that we'll link to that has some excellent local charities in their top 100 list. In the UK, take a look at the Trussell Trust for food banks and food donations. They have a search tool that will help you locate a food bank near you. And remember to always check what they need before you donate food or objects. And often their websites are updated regularly to tell you what they need. For example, my local food bank where I live right now is in urgent need of microwave rice, tinned fish, tinned tomatoes, and jam, while they say they've got plenty of beans, tinned vegetables, and pasta. Also consider donating to Shelter, a charity that focuses on homelessness and insecure housing. They provide advice, information, legal representation, and advocacy for people who are at risk, and this year the number of people who need their services is only going up. There's also crisis – who work directly with thousands of homeless people every year. They offer education, employment, housing, and well-being services, as well as one-to-one support and advice for homeless folk across England, Scotland, and Wales. And for racial and inequality justice, take a look at Stand Against Racism and Inequality. They provide support and advice to victims of hate of all types, whether it be racist, homophobic, transphobic, or something else. If you're in the UK and you want to find a local charity near you, a place to start looking is using the Charity Commission Service if you're in England or Wales, the Scottish Charity Regulator if you're in Scotland, or the Charity Commission for Northern Ireland if that's where you are. And if you do want to buy physical gifts for the people in your life this year, please do look at your local small businesses first, or consider finding small businesses you can support online. Shop local, shop small, help as many businesses as possible, make it through 2020 and 2021. And if you have a little left over, support fact-based journalism, both national and local. Journalism is time-intensive, it is best delivered free to us all, and the ad-based model that supported it for a long time just does not translate in a world of digital ads, so it needs those of us who can pay to be willing to support it for the good of everyone. As always, thanks for listening to us here at Science for the People. And for those of you who have supported us and continue to support us so we can keep making this show, we deeply appreciate every one of you. A small number of our listeners have graciously allowed the show to continue to exist free of charge and allowed our team to focus our time and effort on creating the show rather than trying to find and keep sponsors. And now, let's get to today's episode. It is again that time of year when we sit down with a cup of hot cocoa on a Skype call with a pair of prolific science readers to look back through the stacks of science-y books they read this past year and give us their thoughts. Here are the books they loved, and the books you might consider picking up for yourself or for that science reader you know in your life. And as we have in previous years, we have a blog post live on our website where you can find the complete list of books you'll hear about on today's show, including links where you can buy these reads online. If you are thinking of buying one of these books, or any book you hear about on a past episode, check out the book list for this episode or the bookshelf section of our website where we keep all of them in one big collection for your perusal. And if you use our links to buy those books on Amazon, we get a little kickback, usually around 50 cents, for sending you over. So you can also use your Christmas shopping to support the show free of charge. And... Although we do have Amazon links like we do every year, in particular in 2020, given all that's been going on and the small businesses struggling to stay afloat, please, please, please this year consider purchasing your books and gifts from smaller retails near you. Many have click and collect, many have ordering online, and they can all use your support right now. So while usually we here at Science for the People prefer you use our links, This year, it's even more important to support your local businesses. We here at Science for the People will be okay, and definitely Amazon will be okay. Returning for another year is the lovely John Dupuis. John is a scholarly publishing librarian and engineering liaison at the Stacey Science and Engineering Library at York University in Toronto, and still blogs sporadically at Confessions of a Science Librarian. John, pleased to have you back.
1: Great to be back.
0: And also returning again is the wonderful Joanne Manister, a faculty lecturer in biology at the University of Illinois School of Integrative Biology, and a science educator and communicator who is also known as Science Goddess on Twitter, definitively the best Twitter username. Joanne, always great to have you with us.
2: Really happy to be back. I look forward to this every year.
0: Me too. This is one of my favorite Skype calls, Science for the People shows that we get to do every year. So just to set the stage before we dive into a little bit more detail, uh, as always, um, can you give us a quick hit at approximately how many science
2: books you've read this past year?
1: Well, Goodreads tells me it's 30, which is about the same as last year.
2: Yeah, I managed to bump it up because I gave myself a challenge to read. Um, So I I did 56 science-themed books, and other nonfiction was about 32. Wow. So, Yeah. Um, I don't know how I did that because this year has been crazy. <laughs> I mean, okay. usually
0: at this point, I would say, how is 2020 overall for science books better or worse than average? But I think probably we should, as we sometimes do on this show, we're trying not to be the coronavirus show, but sometimes you just got to talk about that thing. Um, so how has what's been going on in the world in 2020, in particular, the pandemic, but also potentially the uh, big u uh, s. election impacted your reading this year.
1: Well, for me, it was um, I think the the main pandemic impact for me was like kind of twofold. One is, uh, my normal patterns from buying books is we do have uh, one of those wonderful independent bookstores in our neighborhood, Book City, which is kind of a mini Toronto chain. And I would usually buy most of my books just going there. You know, checking out what the what's come in, the 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 latest entries on the uh, you know on their what's new shelf, and of course that really wasn't possible this year. So I did end up mostly doing either delivery or curbside pickup from Book City. But it was how I chose the books that I was going to read was very different. I had to be more uh, I had to be more kind of proactive as opposed to relying on serendipity. And I think that, you know, uh, I think that affected a lot what I ended up reading. So it was much more, like I said, it was much more, you know, I had to decide I wanted to read a book in advance. And that was really, you know, and that was really different. The, the other thing that I saw was that uh, this year, I really needed more than most. I really needed books that had a strong narrative and a strong sense of, uh, and a strong kind of personal voice, uh, you know. For what it's worth, uh, this year, books that just tried to explain something to me, uh, I just, you know, I found it uh, difficult to kind of keep focused on on those on those books this year. And so you that's know, kind of what I would see was the difference.
2: I, I'm actually going to jump in here because I noticed that many books out there this year that I happened to read were more memoir like. And and especially by women. And I felt like this was probably inspired by Hope Jarin's book, Lab Girl, how successful that was, like how you could talk about your life in science and your life together and reach a broader audience. So I feel like those voices were really out there this year. They didn't know it was going to be a pandemic when they wrote it, but they were there. So and uh I agree. Well, I tend to I sometimes I love to just go to the library and look at what books are coming out and. Uh, couldn't do that as much this year. I also rely on sometimes uh, publishers sending me their books, but they sort of stopped doing that. There was like months. And even so, if they sent it to my university address, I couldn't go get them. So um, I did have to be more, like you said, more, what books are out there? Let me go find them. Let me get them on audio. Let me, you know, whatever it is that it took to get the books.
0: I think the biggest impact this year for me has been a just general downward trend on my overall reading. Um, and that's not necessarily specific to the pandemic in that it like turned me off reading books, but in having extra time that I would usually spend doing traveling. I mean, I'm, I'm one of those people where because I don't have kids, because I worked from home normally, um, I, I ended up with more time to kind of fill. And I also needed a a distraction from the real world, I found. And so for the first time in a lot of years, I've actually just craved Less nonfiction. So, um, and even the fiction I'm reading is not kind of formalized fiction. I'm spending a lot of time, uh, doing my own world building to play Dungeons and Dragons with a group of friends of mine, um, and watching real plays. So it's been a nice kind of escape a bit from reality. And I think part of that is also just not doing as much nonfiction reading this year. The nonfiction books and the science books that I've read have been great. I haven't regretted any of them I'm just finding myself pulled in a different direction this year and I think some of that has to do with just the reality of the world around us yeah
1: one of the interesting things is um I've already hit my Goodreads target for the year in fact I'm over it by two and that's really unusual for me usually I'm kind of scrambling to to read the last one to finish the last one on like New Year's Eve or something like that um but what happened was is I ended up, again, since I needed a different kind of thing, I really read a lot more kind of graphic novels this year. and And of course, those are shorter and quicker to read. and so that's kind of that's been a big difference for me is is that's you know that's the kind of thing that I've really needed to read this year is something that's going to really uh, pull me in, keep me going, uh, and just you know is going to be really entertaining.
2: Yeah, I think the only thing that changed for me, uh, you know, obviously, I read a lot of books, I think even more than in the past, but was um, choosing, yeah, choosing books that just were very different and very informative and things that I've n- never thought about reading in the past. So in a way that I, I broadened uh, the kinds of books I would reach for. And maybe that has to also do with which ones were out there. So I I felt like I still love nonfiction. To me, nonfiction is great because it tells me about things I don't know. Hopefully, that's my choice.
0: Have you found your reading um, following any kind of new cycle or ebbs and flows or maybe opposite ebbs and flows with a sort of weird cycle of restrictions and lockdowns? I mean, we all live in three different places. Uh, Joanne, you're in the US, John's in Canada, I'm uh, over in the UK. And so uh, the three of us here have a broad and quite different experience of the cycles of lockdowns, the cycles of restrictions. Um, Have you found that that impacted or affected your reading? generally this
1: year well for me the big thing that affected uh me was the fact that i'm i'm not commuting um i like pretty well everybody in toronto my normal commute is actually pretty brutal about a, an hour to an hour and a quarter each way in nor- normal circumstances so that's gone right that's just completely gone and so i had to find new way a new way to make the time to read Right, because I would my commute mm-hmm. was uh, was all by public transit, so I had, you know, kind of baked into my day, uh, solidly an hour to an hour and a quarter of you know pretty dedicated reading time, and yeah, that uh, that completely changed. So the so I did need so I did find that I needed to to be more intentional to make time to read every day.
2: My commute's never been that long. So I think uh, it didn't really change that much. But I am trying to think, how did I fit more things in the day? <laughs> you know, how, how did I fit those books in? But I think it was just a conscious effort to make sure that I kept reading, including the challenge that I had set for myself. You know, how can I meet that? But I did read more books related to uh, politics. And, uh, our democracy and things like that, considering we were having sort of a bit of an upheaval around here and looking to, you know, elect a new president, which it looks like we did. And so, um, so I read some of those books, although, uh, there were a lot of books written about the Trump administration by people who were there, who, who left. And, and my oldest son had said, wow, it's like anti-Trump fanfic. You know where people are dying to read about the bad things Trump has done. <laughs> I try not to read too many of those.
0: That's a really great like that's a very canny um your son nailed it, I think
2: actually yes, is what he I'm trying did to say. and and I was like, that's perfect. that's exactly what uh it, it is
1: <laughs> It's literary version of doom Scrolling.
2: Yes, exactly. Except a stack of books.
1: (laughs) Right. You want to immerse yourself in the absolute worst. So when it gets better, it somehow seems that it was was always going to get better. Right. You have to hit the bottom and really Mm -hmm. understand that bottom before you can climb out of it.
2: I, I think that's an accurate way to describe that.
0: Yeah, I think there's, um, since you mentioned uh, the lack of commute, uh, I work from home, but I usually um, would travel a lot more for work. So I'd spend more time on trains, more time uh, in cars, uh, commuting um, in other people's cars, commuting to and from those places uh, once every couple of weeks. So, you know, you spend half a day on various trains and train stations and that kind of thing. And then I'd be at a hotel for a few nights and at that hotel time, because you're sort of tired from lots of meetings all day, and then your brain's a little bit fried, but not so fried that you can just fall asleep. And I did a lot of my reading in those spaces. So having you mention it makes me realize that that's actually probably accounted for Um, definitely some of my, uh, little reading this year was just a lack of that space when I sort of reserved for reading is that a lot of that commuting time, I pretty much spent most of my time on trains reading books. That's, that's what happens on trains is you read books. Um, so not having really been on a train since February last year or February earlier this year, I, I definitely have lost out on hours and hours of reading time. So that's uh, a fair point. Um, and I think as well, what you just mentioned about doom scrolling, I've definitely pulled way, 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 away from a lot of the social media, I would typically even just like scan through to kind of see what's coming out and what the topics are, in order to just get away from that doom scrolling. So I'm not I'm also not probably seeing as many topics. Um, That are kind of triggering then searches online to see if there's a book on that topic or something new. Um, So that's probably also been part of it is just pulling that input out almost entirely and kind of dropping it because it's just it's it's just too doom scrolly right now. There's too much Doom and you can't filter it out when all you want is something else. So to some extent you just gotta turn it off. So In general, how was 2020 overall for science books based on what you read? Um, Better or worse than an average showing? Were there different themes that you found yourself gravitating to other than the ones that we talked about? John, you mentioned reading a lot more um, graphic novels and kind of craving more of a narrative as an example. Um, Any kind of – what's your sort of overall uh, 30,000 view of 2020 science books?
1: Well, it seemed to me to be kind of a normal year. I don't think there wasn't – there didn't seem to be a big buzz book uh, this year, um, I think next year is going to be the, but, you know, there's probably going to be a pandemic theme <laughs> for the science books. Um, so that's probably fairly predictable. But I didn't see, I, didn't, I don't think I really saw so much of a theme, um, of a theme this year. Uh, aside from, again, there's just, there you know, I did, I did actually, you know, I remember last year I mentioned, that for me the theme of last year was you know the threats to I guess um, survival and th- and freedom in a in a way you know and last year I was really tracking this idea of oh you know uh, artificial intelligence is going to kill us all but I don't know I, I don't seem somehow quite so worried about artificial intelligence this year I'm not sure I'm not sure why maybe you know uh, maybe. Resistance is futile, but I think somehow um, survival seems a bigger topic this year. And I certainly did read a fair number of books about the climate crisis, and uh, or peripheral, you know, peripheral to the to the climate crisis. So I think in that sense that was probably a bit of a theme to some of my reading. Although again, I don't think you know as we'll see as we go through uh, some of the various. talking points. Those climate crisis books didn't really end up on my list on any of my favorite lists. So I don't know what that says either.
2: That's funny because I was thinking I read a lot of climate books too, but they didn't end up on my favorite list. So um, I saw, first of all, lots of books written by women. And I don't know if the, the publishing industry is, you know, uh, actively courting more women, you know, making sure to actively publish more. But um, I there were a lot and a lot of those were about uh, space, space travel, space exploration, the end of the universe, things like that. So I feel like that's what I saw a lot of this year. So
0: overall, what do you think was the best book you've read this year? If you had to pick favorites or just one favorite, or maybe I'll let you get away with two favorites if you really can decide. What's the best one, the the biggest standout?
1: Well, like usual, I'm always going to pick one uh, book book and one graphic novel book. Um, My favorite book book of the year was quite easily – Fighting for Space: Two Pilots and Their Historic Battle for Female Spaceflight by Amy Shira Tytel. Fantastic book. Again, it was one I read fairly early on in yes. uh, in the lockdown, and it's it's got a great narrative. It's fa- you know super interesting. It reads like a novel. It's basically a dual biography of uh, two. Uh, two women pilots, Jackie Cochran and Jerry Cobb, and their battle to become astronauts, so, you know, uh, test pilots, you know, that sort of thing. And, you know, they're just charismatic, you know, passionate, determined. Uh, you know and to use kind of an old fashioned word that really describes these two women they have a lot of moxie and you know this is all set in the you know 40s and 50s so like moxie seems like the perfect word for them and you know they're just the kind of people that become astronauts right this that kind of determined competent you know pragmatic and it was like a really really interesting book i really loved the stories of how those women fought for their opportunities, but it was also a very human story in that there was, you know, uh, competition and resentments and political machinations, and so there was, you know, so there it was, it was a, it was very much a complete human story about people wanting to do amazing things. The other book what well, is one, uh, the graphic novel is one that I just finished uh, a week or so ago. And that's, um, Sapiens, a graphic history, the birth of humankind, volume one by, uh, Yuval Nora Harari and David van der Meulen and Daniel Casanave, which is the graphic novel version of Harari's, uh, book, Sapiens from a couple years ago. And this was just a really good adaptation of, of the, fir- I guess, various of the themes of that book. Beautifully illustrated, um, kind of a, a nice narrative, a little bit guilty of um, some things that I often see in these kinds of graphic novels, where a lot of it is just drawings of two people talking to each other, which you know is a bit, um, you know, kind of not taking advantage of, of the of the the graphic nature of of the medium. But I, I really enjoyed it. It was again, you know, kind of a, it was a bit lighthearted, but a lot of great information, uh, terrific storytelling you know, uh, beautifully illustrated. So that was, uh, that was a really wonderful book.
2: Oh, how cool. So I really enjoyed fighting for space too. Uh, she, she wrote a book called breaking the chains of gravities a few years back. So I was looking forward to her next book. So I enjoyed it, but, um, if it was hard for me to choose, uh, I felt like last year I was able to go, wow, I love this book so much. It, it was harder for me to choose that. But if I, if I, and narrowed down to pick one. I chose Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death, and Art by Rebecca Rags Sykes. And this is more a book on anthropology. And I, I guess I was just stuck in, you know, the cliches about Neanderthals that we've been fed in media and things like that. But this book so beautifully took the anthropology and understand, you know, paleontology of the, the field. And built this beautiful, evocative story of what Neanderthals were like and what we learned by the different sites. It's a very big book. Um, but I enjoyed it so much. So I, it, it just sort of blew me away that, um, you know, these were like, these were very human-like. And Kindred is such an excellent title to make you feel like, yes, I can relate to This species that's no longer living. So I, um, I, I was just really impressed with this book and I did not expect to be. Um, another book I really enjoyed was The Bird Way, a new look at how birds talk, work, play, parent, and think by Jennifer Ackerman. And I read that book in the summer, um, where I could sit outside and enjoy birds. And I've learned so much about birds just through that, um, very specific things that I never knew before. Um, and she has a great way of writing.
0: I think my favorite this year, the one I, I think most about and uh, probably also one that surprised me a little bit, uh, was When Death Becomes Life, Notes from a Transplant Surgeon by Joshua Mesrich. It is, um, I expected it to be a book about the history of transplant surgery, the history and science of transplant surgery, which it absolutely is. But what I, got from this book even more than that. And that part is excellent. It's really great, well-structured, well thought out, um, just well done. But he winds so much of his own experience as a doctor, as a trans surgeon, both as a young one just starting out in the field, um, as well as uh, one who's been working in it for a long time. And some of the challenges, he talks about some of his gravest mistakes um, and the impact of those mistakes on people. He really tries to grapple with some of the ethics around transplant surgery and the science there, uh, both historically, but also now today. And I, I didn't expect that in this book. I expect. I expected a sort of standard um, historical science overview of how we got to transplant surgery, which we do today. And that's there, but it's woven so much um, with the experience of a transplant surgeon, as well as the culture of being a doctor. And that I appreciated so much more um, than just having a book about the history and science. That stuff is super fascinating. There's a bunch of stuff I learned in there. Um, there are things I absolutely didn't know. And it was really cool to read about it. But and I'm sure you could hear it in the interview. I actually did because I, I talked to um, Joshua Mesrich. Uh, I'm more focused in on his willingness to be open and vulnerable and talk about the real world aspect, both for the family, for the the people who are waiting for surgery, for the people for whom it doesn't go well. And as a doctor, having to make those choices and do that incredible thing, it just really fascinating.
2: Well, wow. Uh, so I read that book after our recording last year, and before the new year. So it's in this no man's zone of you know adding that, but I remember that was an excellent book, and again, I feel like we're seeing a lot more of this here's the field, and here's my experience in the field and those could be done well, and they could be done terribly, but he did it really well. Mm-hmm. It was, it was really a lovely book.
0: So on the topic of books that weave science and maybe even history of science in with a strong kind of personal uh, narrative or uh, personal experience, any shout outs to other books you've read that kind of have that vibe to them that you think are
2: really good? I'd like to shout out to Lab Girl by Hope Jarin because she did this so well and she reached a large audience because of that. Uh, but I felt like two books I, I read this year that are in my list of what book I couldn't put down. Actually, there were two. One is called *The Sirens of Mars: Searching for Life on Another World* by Sarah Stewart Johnson. It's about Mars research, how she was a part of that, uh, the you know uh, exploration of Mars, and then also *The Smallest Lights in the Universe* is most definitely a memoir of her life her raising her children, her husband dying of cancer, but also her work as an MIT astrophysicist, and that's Sarah Seeger. So those books were both magnificent in this regard.
1: Yeah, for me there was um one really interesting personal voice book. Um well well, it wasn't really a personal voice book, but it was kind of almost again um, submerging me in uh, another time and place um, was American Sherlock, music, uh, Murder Forensics and the Birth of American CSI by Kate Winkler Dawson uh, and this is a book about um, again that first American uh, forensic uh, anthropologist, you know, forensic scientist uh, Oscar Heinrich and it was a really, really uh, interesting book. Set again from like the twenties to the forties, or the teens to the forties. Uh, uh, great scientific, great science content. Really talking a lot about how they developed those um, initial forensic techniques. The really gruesome, fascinating murder cases that were involved, as well as the You know, the politics and the rivalries and the competition amongst the various people who were, who were building that field at the time. Um, and Heinrich was a, was a bit of an oddball, kind of a weird guy, uh, in a lot of ways. And so the just his story combined with the story of that kind of start of forensic science was also, was just a really wonderful combination. Uh, it was definitely a book that I couldn't put down. It's a book that I would, you know, certainly recommend for someone that doesn't usually read science books because it's about a lot of other things too. But yeah, so that one was one that really brought that kind of historical voice and presence to me. I also read one of the, speaking of forensics, I also read uh, this year, A Conspiracy of Bones, one of the uh, Temperance Brennan books by Kathy Reichs. And while perhaps not the best book in the series, it was again kind of a page turner that really that really kept you going. A great novel.
0: Awesome. So, what about a book that kind of surprised you?
1: The one, the book that really pleasantly surprised me this year. The one that I guess I I I assumed was going to be a bit of a slog, but which ended up being a really great read. Was science fiction's how fraud, bias, incompetence, and hype undermine the search for truth? By Stuart Ritchie. Um, and so it's it's I guess an area that I'm already somewhat, um, you know, somewhat familiar with, kind of in my science scholarly publishing librarian role. A lot of the things that we kind of talk about and that we are kind of immersed in. Uh, about the, kind of the scholarly communication system in science. Uh, you know, this book touched on a lot of those themes. So I was expecting it to be, okay, another book that I'm going to read. But Richie really had a, you know, really kind of brought it through, brought us through this what could be quite grim book with a lot of great stories of fraud, bias, incompetence and hype, and, and made it a, a really entertaining uh, narrative. While at the same time, making a really, really strong case for uh, more integrity and more openness and you know better a better way of doing science uh, that I thought was a book that uh, you know it you know tells a story and makes a case at the same time. This is one of those books where I thought to myself, if I could get every single science and engineering, you know, undergraduate and graduate student and faculty member at the institution to read one book altogether, this would be it. Right. I, I thought it, it made its case for a better way to do science in a way that, you know, wouldn't make people who are doing science right now feel bad about how they're doing science and thus kind of create that defensiveness but rather it would would draw people into a way to do it better in a way that seemed like it was you know, come on this journey with me rather than I'm going to point a finger at all you bad people and tell you how you should be doing the right thing so that was a book that pleasantly surprised me, I wasn't expecting I wasn't expecting to love it
2: Uh, so the book that pleasantly surprised me was one called Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds, and Shape Our Futures. A book on mycology by English biologist uh, Merlin Sheldrake. And honestly, I didn't know there was that much to know about fungi. Um, even though I'm a biologist, it's just not my area. And I just really enjoyed how he put everything together, wrote a wonderful story about uh, fungi, and learn some cool facts. I enjoyed it.
0: What about a book you couldn't put down?
1: Well, to me, this was again a book that I wasn't expecting to love as much as I loved it. And it's A Lab of One's Own, One Woman's Personal Jur- Journey Through Sexism and Science by Rita Caldwell and uh, Sharon Birch-McGrain. So I, I've read a bunch of books like this over the years, and I was kind of expecting, um, you know, another one of those, another one of those, you know, again, a great book. I was expecting a great book with a good story, but you know, uh, Colwell is a force of nature, right? One of those. People that just seems to always just get everything done, to be on top of everything, to be doing everything, to be, you know, breaking all the records. And it was just, it was just a really well written book telling her story, her very personal story alongside the, That again, that journey through sexism in science. You know, again, this is so. This is somebody who started her career in the 1950s, and kind of moving through. You know, being again that first person to do a bunch of things, that first woman to do a bunch of things, and so to me, it was you know again that story, her story, brought me through the book in a really interesting way. Um. In, in the sense that she was able to kind of personalize the battles against sexism in a way that I think anybody reading the book would be able to understand, yes, this exists. It's real. Uh, but at the same time, and I guess this is to me a little bit of a flaw of the book in that I think in maybe somewhat typical of, of um, you know, maybe that generation, there was a little bit of a hint of if I could do it, you could do it too that I think might have just downplayed a little bit in a subtle way the the effects of kind of the institutional aspects of sexism um, that again, I think you know, she's such a powerhouse she, you know, things that in the sense that it was so easy for her, or so easy, relatively easy for her to just bowl through all the obstacles in a, in a way that might not be a universal experience.
2: It's good that's on my list of things to read this year.
1: Great so. book. One of the, you know, certainly up there with Lab Girl by Hope Jarin, which, which I read when it came out. Great Great, great book on the story of, of one woman's uh, journey.
0: I think that's really interesting that – and it's something I think about a lot working in the tech industry where being a woman can also be a very lonely, very combative experience. Um And in particular, as there are sort of new women coming into the industry who I'm in a position to mentor or be that backboard for them when they run into some of these things, and definitely being more aware of the ways in which my own personality make it easier for me to be a woman in this space that are just kind of luck of my personality. So things that I find much easier to navigate or that I don't find as threatening, or that I don't find as um, I can just kind of handle them. and They they don't feel difficult to handle, even though they're maybe not fair to handle. For other people who are just different, because people are different, uh, they struggle with some of those things in a different way. And so uh, what you said there and how that like, it's not what you find easy, other people don't find easy, or even the hurdles that you've had to overcome can be harder for other people to overcome for a wide variety of reasons from background to uh, a bunch more different biases working in play. It uh, It is definitely something that I've just been thinking about a lot.
1: And you know, one of the other books that I read this year was Uncanny Valley by Anna uh, Weiner, or Weiner, I'm not sure exactly how she says her name. Uh, and that's a story about a woman in Silicon Valley in the text in- tech industry. And she was more of a square peg in a round hole, right, in terms of her personality and how she came from the kind of the being a you know, literary agent and then went into kind of tech support and, you know, user experience and that sort of thing. And, you know, um, I think. Her story may have been more broadly representative in that she always felt like an, more of an outsider, whereas Caldwell felt like an outsider, but she was also a bit of, you know, uh, again, that kind of force of nature that was just going to, you know, again, she's the kind of person that becomes an astronaut, right? Mm-hmm. Just that person that's a force of nature and that it, it just can get through by force of will. Uh, and again, so I thought Uncanny Valley was a maybe a bit more realistic in the sense that it was more of a kind of a uh, normal person trying to get through a system that's working against them.
2: So I had mentioned the two books I couldn't put down in when we were talking about sort of the memoir type books, Um, but I'm... So I'm going to add a different one for what book I couldn't put down it. And it was one that came out just right at the beginning of the pandemic. And so authors are struggling and, oh, how can I get the word out about my book and things like that? But uh, this book's by Mara Vistendahl, um, and it's called The Scientist and the Spy, A True Story of China, the FBI and Industrial Espionage, about some Chinese folks, uh, well, an unwitting Chinese fellow who gets involved in trying to steal corn seed secrets, and a lot of it takes place right here in Illinois, so that was of interest. And, and of course, we were, before the pandemic, there was a, a lot of news about, are the Chinese stealing secrets from our universities? I mean, this is an ongoing issue, but there was a lot more um, uptick in this kind of stuff, so this book was very, very good, and I just I just really liked it. It was a good story about, you know, you involve the FBI and espionage. Of course it's going to be a good book.
0: What about a book that made you learn something you didn't expect or perhaps that changed your mind about something in a way you didn't expect?
2: Um well, I I learned a great deal from this book called Alien Oceans: The Search for Life in the Depths of Space by Kevin Hand, and it just talks about exploring um Enceladus, uh the moon of Saturn, you know, so the moons of Jupiter and Saturn and what 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 are we looking for when we go look for life and how can oceans help? And are the are these real? Are they oceans like we're used to? What is it going to be? And I I learned so much I couldn't even uh believe it. I thought I'd been keeping up on the research just lightly through Twitter, but Uh, This book really helped uh, clarify all of that for me. So I really add that one uh, to – I mean, I had several where I learned a lot, but this one just surprised me to no end.
1: And so, yeah, a book that changed my mind about something and that I really enjoyed – was humankind a hopeful history by rutger bregman translated by elizabeth manton and erica moore uh rutger rutger bregman is the the guy that faced off with you know um michael dell and all the uh you know a, a, and all the uh oligarchs at davos a few years ago and became kind of a meme anyways this this is a really interesting book it it it, it um it really goes through the research and emph- emphasizes how, you know, we might have this really depressing, dystopian view of human nature sometimes. But this is – he really goes through the research and shows, you know what? Humans are get-along – the human species is a get-along and cooperate species. And so he shows, you know, again, through research – Emphasizing human cooperation rather than competition. It's very systematic, very evidence based. He overturns a lot of really preconceived notions of that humans are bad kind of meme. And he goes through like, uh, the Milgram electric shock experience, experiment, the Zimbardo prison experiment, you know, the Kitty Genovese bystander effect. He goes through all these things and says, you know what? What you think happened? If we dig deeper, there's a there's a deeper story to to this, and I, and so I you know I definitely learned a lot, and it was a very interesting book, uh, a lot of great research. Again, combining that with, um, you know, combining the research with a good narrative. Another book that combined uh uh good research with a compelling narrative and a great really. Um, unique voice was a kind of a holdover from last year that I that I read at the beginning of this year Uh, Rachel Maddow's uh, blowout corrupted democracy rogue state Russia and the richest most destructive industry on earth and that was kind of more the the interface between politics and the oil industry and and I definitely learned a lot about again you know Russia Rex Tillerson the oil industry in you know Oklahoma and Texas and all those places, and I thought that was a and you know Rachel Maddow has a has a really great voice, and you know reading the book I could hear her, I could hear her speaking, uh, you know in in the, the the best of Rachel Maddow speaking. Sometimes she can be a little doomscrolly, um, you know, watching the show, but I found I found the voice in the book really kept me through something that might have otherwise been a bit dry.
0: For me, uh, I really, I mean, I definitely enjoyed reading the address book, What Street Addresses Reveal About Identity, Race, Wealth and Power by Deidre Mask. But um, in particular, while I don't know that I necessarily learned anything new, I got a much deeper, more nuanced understanding of why people get so conflicted and angry when we change street names or town names or city names, um, which is something that has always struck me as kind of, I don't get why people are so angry about this. Um, And her kind of exploring how that can really untether people from their own identity, from their past, from the um, experience of their parents or their grandparents in a space that suddenly kind of doesn't feel theirs anymore in a weird way, that gave me a lot more nuance and a lot more context to understand where that debate comes from and why changing names of things elicit such strong responses in people, even people who don't necessarily cling to the idea of whatever it's named after. It's just, that's what that thing is called. And that's what I know it as. And that's what my mom knows it as. And that's how I talk to my grandmother about the space. And so um I, I really appreciate that that book spent uh, some time talking through how that's much more complicated than I thought.
2: Well, I'm glad to hear that because it's on my imminent to be read list. It seems very intriguing.
0: What about uh, the best science history book or perhaps science biography you've read this year?
1: Yeah, the, the, the best one that I read this year is a a kind of, again, a kind of a holdover uh, from a couple of years ago. And again, the theme that I, I always seem to have some sort of history book that brings in um, kind of the the interaction between uh, war and science or engineering. And uh, the one that I read this year was Architects of Death, uh, the men who engineered the Holocaust by Karen Bartlett. And this is about the company, uh, the top company in Germany that built the ovens uh, in the concentration camps, in the death camps. And so you don't really think about that a lot in a sense, right? Is okay. We, we concentrate on, okay, there were guards, you know, there was a uh, mass murder uh, and it's what we don't, I don't know, for me at least, what I guess I never really thought about is, you know, someone built the ovens, right? Who did that? What company did that? Who were who the people that worked for the for that company? You know, what happened to them? Um, and so, yeah, and so this is the story of, of that company, the company that built the the ovens. And it's just, it's really fascinating. Uh, you know, not a cheerful read. Fortunately, I guess I you know read it before. Maybe I, I probably could. This is probably a book that I may maybe wouldn't have been able to get through during the pandemic. So I you know I think I read it in in January or February. But yeah, you know certainly certainly if if someone can prepare themselves for this book, I think it's it's a really important book to read.
2: Yeah, uh the one of the best science history books I read this year was called The Alchemy of Us: How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another by Anis Ramirez. And uh she picked, I think it's 8 inventions that actually had a lot of influence from um Black inventors, African American inventors, and um and her specialty is material science. And it just, you know, where did even SCOTUS come from? Where did POTUS come from? We we sort of find that out when we look at the invention of the telegraph and other things and um, the invention of the railway and uh, the even Polaroid film, things like that. Just it was so fascinating and just it, it's a really accessible book. So I think even young adults could read it and, and really learn a lot from it. So I felt like this was a great uh, history book. A great science biography uh, that was really intriguing was Why Fish Don't Exist, a story of lost love and uh, and the hidden order of life by Lulu Miller about David Starr Jordan, a taxonomist. Um, there's, you know, rise to power, maybe a murder and things like that. You just you just wouldn't expect this to be the life of a taxonomist. I really uh, found that book very interesting.
0: What about the funniest book you've read this year? So
1: yeah, so I had a couple that come that come on to my list on this one. Um so the the first of course is The End of Everything by Katie Mack. Um I don't think she was she wasn't trying to be funny, but she has a very lighthearted style. And certainly this was a, a book that I you know, again uh, as I mentioned, i I did have a little bit of trouble this year with books that were just trying to explain something to me, and i this was a book that was definitely this is a book that definitely is trying to explain something to you and what made it vastly easier for me this year uh with this book for this year was the fact that she does have such a kind of a light-hearted, engaging uh easy style. And so that, so w- while it wasn't, I don't think necessarily funny, um, you know, I think that would be, you know, that certainly made it a lot easier for me to get through, uh, again, a mostly, this just explains something to me book. And I really, really enjoyed it. The other one is Humble Pie, When Math Goes Wrong in the Real World by Matt Parker, which I think is, again, he was trying to be more explicitly funny. And it's a, it's a, it's a really fun book. It's about, again, how math goes wrong in the real world. And it was a very enjoyable read.
2: Uh, I enjoyed Katie Mack's book too. And compared to a lot of the other space books that really did have a personal narrative included, hers didn't. So that's, that's, uh, I think, you know, what made it different than the trend of the space books written by women that include their own personal stories. But I, I did enjoy her book. The funniest book I read this year was Cattail, the wild, weird battle to save the Florida Panther by Craig Pittman. Now, Craig Pittman does write very humorously, very wryly. Uh, so the book itself was very interesting. So it's a good book on conservation and, um, yeah, environmentalism, all set in Florida. So you know, it's going to be good.
0: <laughs> what about a book you want to read again? And why do you want to read it again?
1: So this, there, to me, this, like, it was a weird year. Because like I mentioned, I, re- I read a lot of climate books. Um, and none of them really stuck. You know, so I, you know, here's four, but the four climate books that I read this year Climate Justice by Mary Robinson, The Future Earth by Eric H- Holdhouse, The Future We Choose by, uh, Christiana Figueres and Tom Rivet Carmack, Carnac, sorry, and The Story of More by Hope Jarin. They were all okay, but, you know, looking at the, looking at my list now, if, if, you, you know, if you ask me which book had which things, it's just gone from my brain. And maybe, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure why this is the case, but that's just what ended up happening with these books. And I think what, ha- you know, part of the reason for that is that I read them in a pretty disjointed way. I think these are books that would actually benefit from a reread and a reread in a very intentional way and together, uh, you know, maybe one after another. And that way I could, you know, there's like, Because they all, amongst them, they cover science, politics, leadership, institutions, personal stories. So it's all there. But I think I, I think I just, I just needed to have it in, in a more organized and intentional way. They're all quite short books as well. And, you know, maybe they needed to be one somewhat longer book. And I could do that, and I could chop them up for myself in a reread.
2: Um, I, You know, the book I would read, again, is called Editing Humanity, The CRISPR Revolution and the New Era of Genome Editing by Kevin Davies. Again, this is a very long book. Uh, there's a lot to know about the CRISPR revolution, and it was very timely, came out just after Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier were um, nominated or awarded the Nobel Prize for this, as we uh, sort of anticipated would happen. But Kevin Davies, he was the first editor of Nature Genome, the, the journal, and he's, he's kept his hand in the field. He has a front row seat to all these goings on in molecular biology and how it moves forward. So I think I would read it again just because he really does have a good style about him. But there's a lot of information that could be gleaned again. And um, But I might want to read it again uh, before uh, Walter Isaacson's new book about Jennifer Doudna comes out next year.
0: And what about a book you would give the person in your life who doesn't usually read science books?
1: Yeah, that usually has to be a book that's that's kind of stealthy about its science and for that um, I really like this local Toronto book uh, called Take Back the Tray revolutionizing food in hospitals schools and other institutions by Joshna Maharaj and she this book you know she has a really interesting take on how to make food a sustainable healthy part of institutions you know in particular hospitals and schools and again, so it's kind of a stealthy, you know, to the extent that, you know, food is chemistry and health science. And so, I, I thought this was a really interesting way to kind of sneak in some ideas about health science and sustainability. Um, to how to s- kind of kind of sneak that in when someone might be, ex- you know, expecting a more of a Jamie Oliver kind of. Um, light and frothy thing.
2: Um, so a book I would give the person in my life who doesn't usually read science books, like like John says, a little bit stealthy. It's got science in it, but it's wrapped into another really engaging story. And it's the book Hidden Valley Road Inside the Mind of an American Family by Robert Kolker, who has written other books along this line. And the, there were this family in colorado where they had 12 children but six were diagnosed with schizophrenia and then how that how disruptive that is but also the science behind how do we know it's schizophrenia how does this affect people are there cures etc so all of that wraps together in a really engaging book it was an oprah book pick so i think you know, someone like my mother would easily read this kind of book um but it was very good and i really enjoyed it
0: What about for the opposite problem, the science book to give the avid science reader, maybe someone not that different from the three of us who has read pretty much everything?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure I have anything for for that person this year. Um, You know, for the that's, you know, just to go back on some of the other things that, um, you know, uh, that I've already mentioned, or one in particular that I've already mentioned, I think that Take Back the Tray, the one about food and hospitals, since it's kind of stealthy in its way, it's a way to sneak in non-science content on, you know, how do you how do, you do um, leadership? How do you do um, advocacy? How do you do all those other kinds of things around getting science taken more seriously? So, so, weirdly i guess maybe the same book for someone yeah someone who doesn't necessarily read a lot of science versus someone that reads a lot of science i think they could both get something different out of this same book which again which i really enjoyed it's a you know again uh, maharaj she really has her story here too um and it's a very engaging read
2: I recommend Fallacy, Life Lessons from the Animal Penis by Emily Willingham because no one else has written a book about penises. And for sure, I'm pretty sure the avid science reader would not have read this unless they knew about it. And it's a great biology book. As a biologist, it's written really well. She is a biologist and um I just thought informative, different, you know, uh, super interesting. And not weird and awkward as many people might think it would be. So it's like as if they were discussing eyes or legs or so- something else. It was very good. Um, for someone who wants a little something more meaty, maybe more academic, I recommend the book Adverse Events, Race, Inequality, and the Testing of New Pharmaceuticals by Jill A. Fisher. And this was part of her research for her Ph.D., very good um eye opening book
0: that one is on That's my that- list
2: yeah it's good. it's a little more challenging than other lighter books, but it's good, so good.
0: I would love to recommend tasting qualities, the past and future of tea to people who read a lot of science, <gasps> and in particular people who read a lot of more academic science um this one is uh, in place a very challenging read. Um, from the standpoint of not like, it's not challenging like a physics book. It's challenging in an entirely different way because it's an anthropology book looking um, in a very kind of academic way at the anthropology of the tea industry, um, in particular in India. It is Super fascinating. I was very excited to see this book existed. I purchased it immediately, and I started reading it immediately, and it was great. I love this book. Um, uh, But it is definitely not a book that just anybody could pick up.
2: I love tea, and so this sounds exactly what I need to read. Maybe this this month.
0: What about science fiction books? Because we're all nerds.
1: So yeah, this was. What I'm reading right now is, and I'm about a, f- a third or a half way through, is Attack Surface by Cory Doctorow. And um, I had Cory Doctorow's um, most recent story collection last year on my list, and it was a book that I quite enjoyed. And this one is about, yeah, it's it's a really deep book, but it's also a very shallow book at the same time in a way that only cory doctorow can pull off it's about computer security it's about hackers it's about revolution it's about changing the world it's about overturning capitalism it's about you know fighting the evil government it's about all of those things and. You know, it's also about this young woman who needs to find a way to live with herself because she's been on several sides of the hacker thing. And so there's, so it's, a, it's quite an interesting book. I'm really curious to see how it's gonna, how it's gonna play out, um, the rest of the way. Corey Doctorow, her, his books are always super readable. They're always very entertaining. Sometimes they're a little bit like a chess game uh, in that you know the characters might be or or chess. They're like a video game in that or a chess game in that the characters are sometimes avatars for a for political for the various political positions. But that kind of somehow he makes that work. Um, The other book that I read, the other science fiction book that I read this year that I want to mention on the graphic novel side. I read the adaptation of Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. And again, so Parable of the Sower, you know, uh is one of the greatest science fiction books ever written. Uh certainly it is. A post-climate apocalypse uh versus religious funda- fundamentalism. You know, kind of a really amazing book. Uh, Octavia Butler is a really amazing writer, and this graphic novel a- adaptation is is something that can really bring this beautiful deep resonant book to a different audience. And I would, uh, would I, I, it's, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Hopefully this year, uh, the second book in the series uh, the, and the duology will come out in the graphic ad- novel adaptation.
2: So I didn't read too many science fiction books. I finished one in December after we recorded last year called, this is how you lose the time war. It's quite short. It's got two voices. Two authors had written it, um, and it was very good. I look forward, actually, to a movie or TV adaptation of it. I think that's in the works. Uh, maybe. Who knows with the pandemic? Um, the other one I read is called The End of October by Lawrence Wright, and this was a book about a pandemic that was being written before the pandemic, and it was sort of spooky how accurate uh, it sort of followed along our pandemic. It's almost like people know how pandemics are going to play out. Uh, this was more severe. The the deaths people were experiencing were pretty gruesome. But, um, you know, I, I, it's just I'm reading that and going, we know what's going to happen. How come our administration couldn't be on it? You know, so it's not like it's a mystery how to rein in a pandemic so because it's in this book anyway it was it was good uh don't read it if you don't want to read about a pandemic i wouldn't recommend it so and what about science books for children or teenagers
1: yeah i the one i read this year i did only end up reading one that's really aimed at a a a, a younger market uh and this one's aimed at, at older teenagers probably 14 and up the mars challenge the past, present, and future of human space spaceflight by Alison Wilgus and Wyeth Yates. Again, this one's by First Second uh, Press. And, you know they, they just do wonderful, wonderful uh, graphic novels. And this one uh, this one was great. It's basically two people. And the the downside to this one is um it, it is a little bit maybe a little bit too much of pictures of Two people uh, talking with each other, and so that that makes it a little bit more static than it, it could otherwise be. But the the upside is it is so beautiful and inspirational, and it's a kind of book that a young person could read and say, you know what, I want to figure out how to put humans on Mars, because the book the the book very very coldly and calculatingly lays out the challenges and the obstacles to getting a human, a human crewed mission to Mars. But ends on a very moving, inspirational and hopeful note. Basi- basically, it's a it's an, um, you know, um, an older you know, older, probably 40-something scientist talking uh, a woman scientist talking to a teenage girl and saying, you know what, this is what the reality is and the teenage girl, but that's so hard. That's so hard. How am I going to do it if it's so hard? But at the end, it's more almost like a, uh, a an inspirational note to say, you know what, we're not going to get there. We're not going to do this. If people don't try, if people don't figure it out, people don't work this way. And, and why don't you do this? Why don't you dedicate your life to figuring out how to do this really? Um, hard thing. So yeah, so a really good book aimed again at, at older, older children for sure.
2: So I have two books, one for the younger set uh, called last the story of a white rhino by Nicola Davies, who uh, is a prolific writer and she always has beautiful illustrations. And I think this book would naturally have um, an important message about conservation so I recommend that for younger kids. Um, and one for the young adults is one I read and enjoyed called The Last Stargazers, the enduring story of astronomy's vanishing explorers by Emily Levesque. Now I was, when I was maybe between the ages of six and 10, my goal was to be an astronomer. Uh, I then shifted gears, wanted to be a medical doctor, and then I ended up in biology. So I never really strayed that far from science at all. But I felt like if I had read this book in my middle school years or high school years, I could have continued on um in astronomy because it really uh, shows how astronomy is done. And it's another book where here's a woman doing science and telling us about her path in science, but also the history of how it's done and um, et cetera. It's very good, uh, very engaging and I think would be easy for the young adult to
0: read, and what about the books you haven't read yet but are definitely on your wish list?
1: So there's um, there's one for me. There's one book from this year that I definitely want to get to uh, in the next little bit, and that's Break em Up: Recovering Our Freedom from Big Ag, Big Tech, and Big Money by Zephyr Teachout. Um so yeah it's just exactly what the title says and that's a that's a book that I'm uh, uh that I'm looking forward to reading. Uh, one that I know that's coming out next year that I want to read and hopefully will uh, you know help me with some of the problems that I had with the climate books this year was Michael Mann has a new book coming out next year. Yes. Yeah. The New Climate War: The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. And so yeah, I'm just really looking forward to that. Hopefully that's you know I've read a I read his other book from a couple years ago i can't recall the title it was a kind of a graphic-y kind of thing and it was wonderful so i'm looking forward to this one and of course i'm looking for you know there was apollo's arrow that just came out by nicholas christakis about uh the pandemic uh i'm looking forward to maybe a hopefully there'll be a, a one or two really good ones next year that we can kind of follow the whole story for the you know the first year or so in a in a kind of a really uh comprehensive and making sense of it all kind of way.
2: So, yeah, thanks for mentioning Michael Mann's book, because that's on my list of things that are coming out in 2020. Uh, Bill Gates has a book coming in 2020 about the climate crisis. Uh, My son is a climate scientist, and when he heard Michael Mann has a book about it, he's like, that's exciting. I'm going to read that. But books uh, that I haven't read, uh, that's on my list, include, the Book of Eels, Our Enduring Fascination with the Most Mysterious Creature in the Natural World by Patrick Spenson. Um, now, I keep passing it by because I think, oh, I don't care about eels, but it's making everybody's top list. So I thought, well, OK, maybe I need to give it a try and learn to love eels. So um, additionally, I have right now sitting in front of me a couple of uh, anthologies. Uh, one is called The Fragile Earth, writing from the New Yorker on climate change, uh, writing wild women poets, ramblers and mavericks who shape how we see the natural world. So uh, it's a nice anthology. Um, it's right here in front of me, waiting for me to read it. And uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to some of these anthology books that have come out this year.
0: I am now looking forward to the eel book, which I did not know existed. And if there is one thing that I have learned about years of reading science books, and in particular, years of trying to find, like, Outsider science books or weird topics uh, or like specific topics. Um, in particular, I've always got my sort of science for the people episode. I eye- uh, glasses on when I'm looking and uh, digging through potential science books to read. Is a book that sounds like why would I read a book about eels? My instant reaction now is I'm absolutely going to read a book about eels, uh, <laughs> which served me very well. I've read a book about krill, super great book. I've read a book about sand, excellent book. So I've definitely. Learned learned uh, that sometimes those books that are just like really hyper focused on a topic can be so good.
1: Yeah, you know, sometimes the other way, you know, we don't we don't get into this particular aspect of it. What I found more this year was books that I thought I was gonna love that left me cold. But we won't mention any of those.
0: That is actually possibly one of the and maybe we can uh, finish on this as a as a topic. Um, this is a question that I actually find I get asked probably more frequently by people who listen to the show by people who find out I uh, do a science podcast. Um The question I get more than anything else is how do you find all of these science books? Like where do you find them from? How do you discover them? How do you find good ones? Um, My information is is pretty straightforward. I actually mostly just uh, use Amazon's upcoming list. So every couple of months I go through the uh, released in the last 90 days and then I look at the upcoming books and I don't really even look at the authors so much at first. I just ping on topics. I'm just like, oh, that's an interesting title for a book or, ooh, that is a topic. It never occurred to me to write a science book. As a great example, I was doing this earlier today before uh, we all jumped on to talk through our books. Um, and I found one that I instantly ordered uh, and instantly put on my Kindle. It's called Dark Archives, a librarian's investigation into the science and history of books bound in human skin.
1: Oh, yes, I know. I definitely know about that one. I have that one's one of those ones that I, yeah, I, it strikes too close to home.
0: <laughs> I'm sure it does. <laughs> uh, absolutely. But it's like that's the kind of book where I'm like, I never would have occurred to me that anybody would have written a book about this topic. I'm in. Um And it may be great, it may not be great, but I find that that's sort of the way I find them. And um in particular, I found since I've kind of stopped paying attention or looking for the buzz books, I get a much broader representation and I feel like I get a little bit more variety um, because I'm not really paying too much attention to like what are the big buzz books coming out, what are the the, you know top ten that people are expecting. I pay a little less attention to that these days.
1: Yeah, I um I use the Amazon I use that Amazon trick as well. I also rely again on my local physical bookstore in most years. Um you know what's floating around on Twitter is also um kinda nice too as a good um as a good strategy one thing that i find kind of really interesting is for the most part the three of us don't talk about the same books right we see there seems to be relatively little overlap in what we read and so i find that really it's it's kind of cool that for whatever reason we all have either such different tastes or different strategies that we end up going in such amazing different directions which i think also says a lot about the science and technology book landscape—that there is so much out there—that three people that all love science books can end up with such different reading lists in a in an average year.
0: I definitely find that um for the hosts that work on Science for the People as well, everybody just manages to think of and find different topics, different books, different people to talk to, many of which whom would never have occurred to me. I just don't know how I would have necessarily found them. Um So I, I think that's one of the important things is to also like talk to a variety of people and make sure you open up that bubble because we do, whether we want to or not, tend to have a certain like genre or focus. And sometimes it's hard to really understand what the theme is. But I think you're right, John, we all kind of have our own, our own bit of that Venn diagram. And there is some overlap, but there's surprising, there's less than you would expect.
1: Did we all right. end up reading the Katie Mack
0: book this year?
2: I am working I through
0: it. I haven't finished it yet. Okay, that yeah. might be the only one.
2: Right, right. Yeah, I read that one. So um, yeah, I do things I uh, it's sort of go to Audible. And the Amazon, so they're they're together anyway. Um, but publishers and authors reach out to me a lot. So you know, the ones that have the the you know uh, what's the word? I can't think of the word. Where you know they they have the gumption to reach out and say, "Hey, I've got books," and you know that's really helpful to me as well. Um, and Twitter, Twitter all the time, and uh, and so I do appreciate authors. Who, who say, hey, I've got a book, um, by the way, you know, and I appreciate that so much. Uh, because some books, I, I don't know if I would have known about Kindred, which is one of my favorite books this year, without the author saying, hey, I've got a book, would you be interested? You know, and so and I'm glad I say yes, all the time.
0: I definitely get a lot of publishers emailing in and sometimes authors and PR folks, and I definitely cannot respond to all of them, but I do right. like that I receive those emails um because every once in a while there's one on there that makes me go, huh, okay, yeah. yeah. yeah yeah, I'll yeah. have that one. Um, and thanks for thinking. Of and me. thanks for thinking of me. And quite often, it's not one of the big publishers. It's great that they send me those things as well. Um, often, it's like the weird kind of out of the way people or a little boutique PR firm mm-hmm. that is working mm-hmm. with a, not an indie author, but uh, an author of a first book uh, that kind of throws something at me. And it, the title catches me or the pitch is really kind of coherent and not wordy. And I'm like, ah. Oh, interesting. and I look into it a little bit more. So um, that is definitely a perk of doing something like a science podcast is your um, science podcast email ends up working its way onto a lot of those lists, which can definitely bear fruit. But I would say the frequency in which it bears fruit is not as often as people might expect. <laughs> so those lists, I would say, are less useful than um, some of the other tricks we've talked about.
1: Yeah, I'm on a bunch of, I'm on a bunch of PR mailing lists and it's mostly, cr- it's mo- sadly, it's mostly crap.
0: It's uh, it's, it's a lot of self-help sometimes.
1: Yeah. Or <laughs> Einstein was always, was wrong or, you know, something
0: like that. All right. Any books that you want to quickly shout out uh, at the last minute before we end, just to get them in under the wire?
2: Um, I will say I am currently reading The Sediments of Time, a li- my lifelong search for the past by Meve Leakey. Hopefully you know the Leakey last name, the legacy, <clears throat> excuse me, the legacy of, um, paleontology and finding, uh, what well, she was part of the group that found Turkana boy. Uh, so, um, it's just really interesting. That's a great biography.
1: Yeah, a book, a book that I didn't quite, I wasn't quite able to find a spot where, where it fit. Um, and, uh, you know, didn't really fit any of the, the categories to a T, I guess, was Lurking How a Person Became a User by, uh, Joanne McNeil. And again, it's just, it's just kind of a history of, the tech industry and the kind of the interaction between the tech industry and the rest of society in a way. And yeah, so I thought that was a that was a pretty a pretty interesting book that I read this year.
0: The only one I want to quickly shout out is 18 Tiny Deaths, the untold story of Francis Glesner Lee and the invention of modern forensics. Um, and mostly because, I mean, this was a book that I never expected to find, but I instantly got when I saw it kind of scroll by because um, as a, a young teenager, uh, I was given a book uh, like a coffee table book of the Nutshell Studies that I found absolutely fascinating. Um, with no none of the sort of historical context, really just uh, amazing photographs of the Nutshell Studies and a little bit of an overview of each one. Um, but not a lot about where these things had come from or why they existed a little bit, but not much. And I remember spending so much time pouring over this book. And uh, so to finally have read the something that that went over that. While I'm not sure this book is necessarily uh the best outstanding book I read, it was a very intensely personal book for me because it felt like uh it felt like there was a piece of a missing puzzle that I had been missing for like 20 years that slotted into into place this year. And it was really it was really delightful for me. So just in case there's anyone else out there who knows the Nutshell Studies and hasn't read this book and has always wondered where the Nutshell Studies came from, read this book. It will make you very happy.
1: Yeah, a a book that a, a leftover book from 2019 that I read at the beginning of this year was The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America by Margaret O'Mara. And again, that's kind of a technical, personal history of The interaction between politics and Silicon Valley in America in like the 50s through the 80s, uh, or the 40s even through the 80s. And I thought that was a really, really interesting, uh, again, a, a holdover from 2019, but there was a lot of great stuff and I really enjoyed it.
0: Awesome. Thank you both so much for joining me again this year. And as always, I will look forward to sending you an email next year when it is time to get together and talk about the books of 2021.
1: The email oh, wow. that I look forward to the most every
0: year.
2: Me too.
0: <laughs> and if you want that list of books we have talked about today, you can find a link to the blog post with that list and links to where you can buy the books if you can't find them at your local bookshop. And you'll find that in the show notes for this episode, which, as always, will be at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgauer, and me, Rochelle Saunders.